Welcome to another edition of the Delaware Valley Journal on the air, the podcast of DelawareValleyJournal.com. We hope you are reading the terrific reporting that our writers are doing. You're visiting our Facebook site and uh, commenting on the news that affects Bucks, Chester, Delaware, Montgomery counties. And you're following us on Twitter, DV underscore journal on Twitter. You want to be there so you don't miss a thing. And if there's ever news going on in the Delaware Valley that you want to make sure gets covered, just email dvjnews at insidesources.com. That's dvjnews at insidesources.com. So we've got a great interview coming up in just a few minutes about uh, a push to promote swim safety as summer approaches. And, uh, you know, it's uh, an important issue. Uh, the, the numbers on uh, children drowning, et cetera, it's very, very disturbing. So I said, you know what, we want to do something that's of public good here on the Delaware Valley Journal podcast. But before we do that, let's do something that's a total waste of time. And I can't think of anything better than talking to Charlie O'Neill, who covers state politics for Delaware Valley Journal. Charlie, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. I know a warm, embracing intro like that. You don't know where to go. Uh, let me ask you about something that's, that I kind of thought was old news, but based on your reporting is not. That is the vote to amend the Constitution to limit the ability of a governor to act unilaterally during an emergency. Uh, we voted on that like two weeks ago. Aren't we done? Well, actually, we're not totally done yet with it, Michael. The first thing that needs to happen is the Department of State needs to officially certify the election results. And that could be happening truly any day now. It did take a very long time for the results to get certified in the 2020 uh, primary. That was, of course, a presidential year. It kind of drug on a little bit. There were some issues with counting the mail-in voting, but that's gotten a lot better now in 2021. So once that becomes certified, of course, the legislature will then have the ability to override any veto that the governor or any emergency powers that the governor has used via Title 35. The legislature isn't wasting any time. They've already started introducing bills, concurrent resolutions, actually, to overturn the governor's emergency declaration, or at least parts of the governor's emergency declaration. And as soon as the results are certified, they're ready to go. They will not be in session next week, but in two weeks, they will be. I expect at some point in time over the next several weeks, we will see legislation cross chambers to limit the ability of the governor when it comes to the coronavirus emergency declaration. Also bear in mind, at one point in time, Pennsylvania was actually under three emergency declarations. There's been an ongoing emergency declaration declared on opioid abuse. There was also uh, declarations at different times for weather. And then of course, uh, when there were riots in May over um, the George Floyd um, shooting. So lots of uh, things that can, can change in terms of an emergency declaration lots of things that can be added. So uh, it, it definitely is going to be interesting moving forward how much the legislature wants to weigh in on opioids and weather and all types of other situations that the governor uses his emergency powers for. Uh, and then of course, after these wrangling of emergency powers, you got the budget coming up. And I know that the Republicans who control the legislature are trying to use the budget as a vehicle to get legislation through. What a shocking concept. Boy, I'm glad they haven't come up with that idea in Washington, DC. Uh, <laughs> so uh, what will we be seeing budget fighting about in the near future? So the biggest issue this year truly is the hole that the legislature and the governor have to fill in terms of revenue that's been lost not just through COVID-19, but Pennsylvania's economy has 
ebbed and flowed the entire time that Governor Wolf has been in office. It seemed like there was an annual meeting in Harrisburg to see how short our revenues were going to be based on where the spend numbers were projected to be. So truth, truthfully, uh, this isn't a new issue facing the legislature, uh, but it is different this year because of course, we have stimulus dollars uh, from the Biden administration, the American Rescue and Recovery Plan. So that should help to cover a lot of the budget shortfalls. But what's important to remember, and many folks on in the legislature have brought this up, is in 2008-2009, uh, of course, President Obama came into office and talked about uh, the stimulus as well, and he had an American recovery plan. And that sent a lot of dollars to Pennsylvania, which were thrown into education spending. Fast forward several years later, we're in 2011, Governor Corbett comes into office, and all of a sudden, those stimulus dollars disappeared, leaving uh, the government to face a shortfall in revenues. Most of that money had actually been put into education. So when, when Governor Corbett submitted his first budget, it really looked like he had cut education spending. He hadn't cut education spending, it's just the federal dollars had, had uh, dried up. The state funding was increased over previous years. So a lot of legislators are concerned, where are they gonna take these so-called Biden bucks? How are they gonna spend them? Are they just gonna backfill operating costs? That's been tried before and it didn't work too well. So there's a lot of lessons from the last round of stimulus dollars, roughly 10 years ago, what's gonna be different this time? And many legislators are concerned about that and as it affects the long-term fiscal health of Pennsylvania. So it's not just my 20 something neighbors who are buzzing about their stimmy checks. They're talking no, stimmy no. checks in Harrisburg too. <laughs> Uh, much, much, much more than that. I mean, you know, remember something, the Pennsylvania state budget is well over $30 billion in state dollars. But there also is a federal component to that, which is roughly around the same amount, almost $30 billion in federal spending. So every time you take federal spending to backfill state spending that doesn't exist, you have to make sure you're still covering all the other aspects of the budget. So it's, it's a game of, of legislative Jenga. And of course, there's a lot of politics involved in it. Um, if you're well, really speaking sure. of politics, let's wrap up with the top topic of pure politics and wildly uninformed speculation about the top profile races for uh, governor and Senate, which, you know, already are going hot and heavy. I thought it was interesting um, when the, we've been covering at Delaware Valley Journal, the announcement by U.S. Steel to pull that, you know, 1.5 ish billion dollar investment they were going to make in their Mon Valley uh, facilities, which is ju not just one spot. It's spread out over several areas and, you know, thousands of jobs at play. And one of the key places was Braddock and their former mayor is the sitting vice president who's running for us Senate. And that money just left his town. And I, I just wonder that I find that story interesting. Am I wrong? Oh, it's very interesting. And really what it's showing you is that there is a huge shift on the far left of the Democrat side of the party. They're no longer interested in all economic development, just certain economic development. And it follows a trend that's been happening for quite a long time. Um, you may recall that uh, the legislature passed a bill to allow for another fracking plant um, that is speculated to be in the Northeast, but there was a chance that fracking uh, plant could have been in Southwestern Pennsylvania. And Mayor Peduto, uh, for, soon to be former Mayor Peduto of Pittsburgh said, we don't need another petrochemical plant in Western Pennsylvania. The Democrats for 
quite a while have been on this policy of no drilling, no fracking, no fossil fuels. It's not a graduated shift. It's an end it now. Um, and it's not really surprising to see folks like Fetterman, you know, walking away from these projects. They've been threatening it for some time, but they haven't had an opportunity to actually do anything about it. Now they have, and they're showing you that they're 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 honest. They're not well, going to be doing these things. Well, uh, Lieutenant Governor Fetterman says that he you know he's upset that they made the decision that they were going to make green steel, you know, some of the, some of the cleanest steel in the country in that facility. But at the same time, there wasn't a lot of talk of him fighting it. And that, you can see he's trying to navigate this new what what's part of his strength. Blue collar voters identify with him. He's one of them. The other side of his strength, progressives like his progressive politics. Well, well this is an area where the two don't mesh. Another yes. area where where things may not mesh is trying to get elected in Pennsylvania as a Republican, not in a primary, but in a statewide election as the candidate of Trump. And I'm curious how do you hear Republicans in state politics talking about the Trump question for the general election? Do you think that he's a hindrance or does he pull out voters who might stay home, but if he gives you your endorsement, he might be able to get them to show up? It's a double-edged sword, Michael, and it always has been here in Pennsylvania. You know, Republicans don't win in Pennsylvania by landslides. We win by very small margins. So when you're looking in terms of, uh, of how how, how does the Trump affect turnout in 2022? In 2018, Trump had the opposite effect. He did not bring voters to the polls. In 2016 and 2020, he did. The Republican statewide victories are not made possible without Donald Trump bringing Republicans to the polls. Yet at the same point in time, the two statewide row officers, Stacey Garrity and Tim DeFore, that won, won because they weren't Donald Trump. There were Republicans that voted for Biden, and in some cases voted for Shapiro, and then they voted Republican on down the ballot. So it really is a, a double-edged sword, but the one thing that we've noticed is when Trump is not on the ballot, Republicans that are so-called, you know, Trumpsters that only vote for Trump, they're only coming out for Trump. He hasn't been able to increase voter turnout when he's not on the ballot. So the race to be with Trump is certainly important, but it does not necessarily mean or guarantee victory. And let me just uh, mention that at Delaware Valley Journal, we have a, a new story with Treasurer Garrity. And speaking of energy policy, she's joined a group of other treasurers around the country warning financial organizations that are saying we're not going to invest in oil, coal, gas, you know, traditional energy businesses. And she's it fired a shot across their bow. Another interesting point of trying to overlap that, hey, I may not be a Trump person, but I'm still you know, pro-energy sector. And so we'll see all, all these mesh. And one of the people who will help us keep an eye on that is Charlie O'Neill on those days that he's sober. So not a lot. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Thanks, Charlie. We appreciate Very your fair. time. Thanks. Have a great day, Michael. And now let's see what's going on around your pool this summer and what should be going on as we think about safety in the Delaware Valley. We'd like to welcome Rowdy Gaines, three-time Olympic gold medalist and U.S. Olympic Hall of Famer. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. We appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. Good to be with you, buddy. Well, we're happy to have you here. And I understand that once again, USA Swimming and Phillips 66 are teaming up uh, on behalf of kids swimming and safety. So could you kind of tell us uh, what this all means? Well, for 
about a half a century or more, uh, Phillips 66 has been a proud partner of USA Swimming. And, and over the last 20 years, especially with the USA Swimming Foundation, I think the biggest thing that they, uh, their corporation is all about is safety. And that's what USA Swimming is all about. It's about obviously building champions, but it's also saving lives. And the fact that, you know, swim lessons is a vital part of what we try to do across this country, um, especially post COVID where everybody's kind of getting back to normal a little bit. The weather's gonna start warming up, pools are gonna start opening up, uh, residential pools especially. So it's uh, even more important to try to remember to stay safe in, on and around water. I'd be curious to know if there has been a decline in the number of parents who are willing to let their kids take swim lessons and swim because the, for lack of a better phrase, fear factor has just gone up. When I was a kid, everybody swam. Everybody took lessons and swam. We would go down to the local pond where I was and just the, you know, just the kids, like we would watch ourselves. We were their own supervision. I can't even imagine that today. Are you seeing a decline or are parents more focused on getting their kids the swim training they need? It's really an interesting question. And I, I will tell you that we're making progress, especially in the minority communities, those underserved communities, especially, whereas I think maybe eight or nine years ago, a survey was done through the University of Memphis, USA Swimming, uh, USA Swimming Foundation and um, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And it found that 70% of African-American children did not know how to swim. But that study was also done just about three or four years ago. And those uh those findings have dropped a little bit. Now it's 64%. So we're making strides, but especially in that African-American community where you're talking about fear, that fear is passed down generationally. And that's something that we're really trying to overcome in that community. Um, and, uh, and, and access is a big, big part of that too. You know, when we were kids, we weren't, we didn't really think about that very much, but access has been very difficult for all families over the last year, year and a half, especially since COVID. And uh, we're finding that as things get back to normal a little bit, um, people will have more access to, to water, um, especially pools. Uh, before I go to Linda, um, I want to follow up on that. The the role that parents play, do you, are, are you, the, the conversation I've had with people who are involved in parenting experts, particularly in something called the free range kids movement, which is trying to encourage parents, let your children do things, let them expose mm -hmm. them to some risk so that as they age, they can handle risk. And if they're ever in a stressed situation, it's not the first time, you know, they've been stressed before and they've worried before. Once again, are you, are, are parents becoming more risk averse, less risk averse, or are you not seeing that trend at all? Well, I will tell you, Michael, I don't mess around with water, dude. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I have a love and passion for the water. Right. Um, I don't fear it. I don't want kids to fear it. I don't want sure. parents to fear it. But the key word is respect. You should always respect the water because there is that inherent danger. And that parent has to be that first line of defense. So I would say totally do not take risk around water mm -hmm. because a child can drown in as little as 30 seconds. It can take longer, but sure. it can take as little as 30 seconds, especially now when we live in this day and age of a smartphone and parents are right. addicted to that right in front of them. So they have no, sure. I don't know if you can't see me or not, but oh, they have nothing vision. in front, yes. right? right? They have, can't see it, anything <laughs> above, <laughs> above and beyond what that's on that phone. Right. And 30 seconds, dude, you can count 30 seconds and it can happen right. like that in an instant so um 
It's as easy as checking the uh, your, your, uh, the door or or going to change the laundry or something right. like that. So, no, I, I, I listen. We, we we didn't necessarily found a hundred percent cure. We did find that swimming lessons reduces that risk sure. of drowning by ninety percent. But even so, swim lessons are critical, obviously. Mm -hmm. But that parent has to be that first line of defense, right. even at a pool with a lifeguard. Linda, Rowdy. Um... First of all, how'd you get that nickname? <laughs> well, Rowdy came from an old television series called Rawhide. It, uh, Clint Eastwood played a character called Rowdy Yates. And it was just a kind of a fun nickname my parents came up with. My real name is Ambrose Gaines IV. I don't have a middle name. So Rowdy just kind of stuck. It actually came from that old television series. As I said, Rawhide and Clint Eastwood paid, played a character called Rowdy Yates. So unfortunately, 62 years later, it still has stuck. <laughs> I'd much rather have Rowdy than Ambrose. I got to be honest. Yeah, you know, it was both were tough to live with, Michael. I got to tell you, I mean, as as a ten year old having a name Rowdy, you know, you're supposed to be tough and rough, and I wasn't anything like that. And then they go, "Oh, you want to be Ambrose," and that was just the opposite of rough and tough. So, uh, but I'm listen. I'm proud of both names, but uh, but everybody calls me Rowdy. Well, I was also wondering how you got into swimming. Well, I, I kind of stumbled into swimming in, in the way of com competition goes. I learned how to swim before I learned how to walk, Linda. I was nine months old and I grew up, I grew up in Winter Haven, Florida, which is about 75% water. I grew up on a lake my whole life. My parents water skied for a place called Cypress Gardens, but I didn't oh, yeah, start with the mermaids. Yeah. So with the mermaids and the water ski show and everything. So yeah, it was a, it was a great life as a kid, but I didn't start competing until I got to be a junior in high school. I was in 11th grade when I went out for my high school swim team. And one of the reasons was I kept failing in sports that I wanted to try out for. I, I failed in five different sports uh, before I even tried out for swimming. So uh, I was sort of a late bloomer, um, so to speak, when it, when it comes to competing. Okay. And then um, I was also wondering what you felt like when you won your first gold medal. Well, for me, it was a, a big thrill because obviously a big thrill because uh, I had been part of the team in 1980 and we had a boycott in 1980 and I didn't get a chance to go along with several hundred other athletes uh, through that boycott. And so my journey turned from a four year journey, which is normally what bef between Olympics is to an eight year journey. And and so that was a, it was a long eight years for sure. A lot of bumps and bruises and peaks and valleys. But uh for me, I think a lot of what the thrill was about the one, it was in the United States. It was in Los Angeles uh, to be able to swim a, a, an Olympics in your home country was a great feeling, a very proudful feeling, uh, a very prideful feeling. And then um, and then the other thing was the journey itself and and the fact that it took so long to get to it. OK, and are you still swimming today? Yeah, I still I swim every day. I'm in the water six days away now. I don't do what I used to. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was swimming probably, uh, I'd probably average eight to 10 miles a day um, of swimming when I was training for the Olympics. And now I might swim a mile or two a day, but I swim almost every day. Yeah. In fact, I just swam this morning. Um, are you still living in Florida? I do. I live in Orlando, Florida. Okay. Uh, we've moved my, my wife and I, we have four daughters, three granddaughters. So I'm Congratulations. lots of, lots of girls in my life. Um, but, uh, we've moved all over the place, but we, yeah, we've been in Orlando now for about almost 15 years. Okay. One last question to wrap up with, and it's about the, uh, 
the issue of safety. What is the right age for people hmm. to start getting their kids swim lessons, formal lessons? And what is the youngest that you've seen? Because I remember that classic Bill Cosby bit where he talked about his kids getting swim lessons and the infant dropped to the bottom of the pool. And I know some people yeah. say, no, infants can learn to swim. I'm, I don't know about that. I'll ask the professional. Well, I don't know how much of a professional I am. I know I get asked that question a lot, Michael. What age do I start my kids? And there is no right or wrong answer. And I, I don't mean to be on the fence on this, but every child is different. Um, I kind of have the viewpoint, and this is just an opinion. This is not a, a professional opinion. This is my opinion, especially having kids and grandchildren. It's when, I, when a child learns how to walk, that is when they need to learn how to be safer in the water, to go through the process of learning to be safer in the water. If that means swim lessons or mommy and me classes, sometimes it's a, an IRS class, which is what you're talking about, having a, a six or nine month old where they actually go through a, an intensive six week course where they teach the child an inherent, an inherent ability to be able to roll on their back and float on their back. Uh, my my uh, my two year old granddaughter went through that class. Very intense six week course, but uh, she, you know she literally learned how to you know save herself pretty much um, after that six week course. But every parent, every child is different. Um, so you know you can figure when you learn how to walk, it's anywhere between twelve and eighteen months. Um, so it's 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 never too early to start. It also depends on whether you live near water. You know. If you live in South Dakota and you have no water near you, it, it may be a, at a little bit of a later age. If you live in Florida, where I live, and water is part of the fabric of who you are as a person, then I would definitely want to learn at a much earlier age because there's swimming pools everywhere. There's huge bodies of water, lakes and oceans and streams. And so it's a long-winded uh, answer to your short question, <laughs> but uh, the point is, is it's, uh, I don't think it's ever too early to introduce that child to the water. USA Swimming and Phillips 66 kick off their national make a splash campaign to encourage a safety around water. Go to usaswimming.org slash make a splash. Delighted to have Rowdy Gaines, who was played by Clint Eastwood in the TV series Rawhide, uh, <laughs> joining us here on the podcast. Thanks for your time. Thank you, buddy. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of Delaware Valley Journal on the air. Please follow us on Facebook or find us on Twitter, DV underscore journal, and send your comments to DVJNews at InsideSources.com. Thanks again for listening.